0: So we're reading 2 Samuel 7, um, from verse 1 to 17. It's on page 222 of the Church Bibles, if you've got one. Okay. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, ''Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you.'' That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, ''Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling.'' Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation.
1: Well, last week over at our Harrington Park congregation, we celebrated our 20th anniversary of ministry in Harrington Park. It was a great morning of celebration. Uh, we shared lunch and John I gave a, a a great presentation of all the different chapters of the, of the story of our church's life. Um, and I it was actually recorded and put up on a church YouTube channel. I encourage you to watch it, it's very encouraging. Uh, but in fact, even just four weeks ago was Gledswood Hill's seventh birthday. I don't know, I don't know if that was celebrated or not, but seven years ago, on the 27th of September 2015, Gregory Hills Anglican Church, now Grace Anglican Church, Gledswood Hills was planted. Hands up, anyone here uh, from the core team back in 2015? Yeah, we've got a few people, there you go. It'd be fun to reminisce on the past seven years of growth of this church. Um, No doubt a big 10 year celebration will come soon. As uh, as I was saying to Pete before, I remember the the prayer meetings in the lead up, we sat in the classroom praying for all the different streets on the map. Um, And it's a real answer to prayer and a real encouragement to see how God has answered those prayers uh, to see this church here today. Um, He has been faithfully growing his church. Seven years ago. Seven years is a long time. And 20 years is even longer. Here's a photo that I shared last Sunday uh, of me a few years into our Harrington Park church. There it is. There's me at the ripe old age of four I think, Um, a few years into our church. Um, There you go, 20 years is a long time, seven years is a long time too. Maybe just cast your mind back seven years. It was 2015, just try to imagine for a moment, what was life like for you then? Just have a think, How, how old were you? Who was in your family? Where were you living? What's happened in the past seven years of your life? What's, what's been the trajectory that's landed you here today, the morning of Sunday, the 30th of October, 2022? What have you been living for? Now, one of my favorite things about church is that every person here has got a different story. If you're young and foolish like me, perhaps the past seven years have just been finishing school and taking on uni or TAFE or full-time work for the first time. Perhaps for you, the past seven years have been full of the hard grind of work, or perhaps times of holidays and travel. Perhaps you've spent the past seven years starting a family or raising your kids through all of the joys and chaos. Perhaps you've had a really tough seven years. Or perhaps you might be feeling just at a bit of a lull. Nothing much has been going on. You've just kind of been drifting here and there. The big question that I want to get at in all of this sort of reflecting on seven years is this, what's been the trajectory? Where have you been going? What were you doing? Why were you doing that? Looking back, what were you living for or working towards? God's word to us today contains some epic news. And my hope and prayer is that today, as we hear God's voice, we do not harden our hearts But rejoice with trembling at his word and ponder the wonder and the magnitude of the things he reveals about himself and about his plans here in 2 Samuel 7. And in doing this, I hope and pray that this may shape and change our lives going forward, perhaps for the next seven years. So let's dive in. So far in 2 Samuel, uh, there's been a lot of action we started the book um, with the violent death of Saul in battle and David's lament for him. Then David was made king of Judah, while Abner, the commander of Saul's army, set up Ishbosheth, son of Saul, as a sort of rival king. What ensued was a bloody war between the house of David, which grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul, which grew weaker and weaker. In a hot pursuit, Abner impaled Asahel, the brother of Joab, who then later murdered Abner in vengeance by stabbing him in the stomach. To round it all off, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was assassinated and decapitated in his own bedroom by two of his own henchmen, who were then punished by King David by having their hands and feet cut off and bodies hung up on the wall. Quite a messy opening to 2 Samuel. In the past three weeks, chapters 5 and 6, David has conquered and captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites and he's settled there. He's set himself up. He also has defeated all the Philistines, who were Israel's longtime enemies. Last week, we heard how the king had brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem and placed it in a tent that David had pitched for it. So today, when we come to 2 Samuel 7 verse 1 and we read the words, The king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. We might be tempted to think that, okay, all the action's over. It's all settled down. David's set up. Nothing interesting here. No. I want to say to you that this chapter, I'm going to make a bold claim, this chapter is one of the most important chapters in the top five chapters in the whole Bible. That's a bold claim for a rookie preacher on his first sermon, but I think it is. It's such an epic chapter where God makes an amazing promise to the house of David that the Lord himself will build a house for him. This morning, I want, to see, I want us to see the bigness of God's promise. But I also want us to look beyond the promise to see the promiser, to ponder the very character of God, the God who makes These big, big promises. So let's dig in. Chapter 7, verse 1. I hope you've got the Bible open there in front of you. If not, you can see it on the screen. 7, verse 1 says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. This tells us a few things to orient us in the story. Uh, At this point, the king is settled in his palace. In chapter 5, we learn how Hiram, king of Tyre, had built a palace for David out of cedar logs which is pretty generous of him. And as I mentioned as well, the king has already brought the Ark of God, that box covered in gold, that he'd brought the Ark into Jerusalem and put it in a tent. But now King David's got a problem. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the Ark of God remains in a tent. David recognises that he has been richly blessed by God with a sweet cedar palace, and rest from all his enemies too. So now he rather nobly wants to see God honoured by building him a nice house too. A very noble thought. Up until now, uh, the ark has been placed in a tent and now that he's settled, he wants to give God a bit of an upgrade. And so he expresses this to Nathan the prophet who agrees with him. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead with it. Go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Notice two little details here. So far, David's only been referred to as the king. You can see verse 1 after the king. Verse 2, the king. Nathan replied to the king. Second detail, David, Nathan's response, the Lord is with you. David's been repeatedly described this way all the way since David and Goliath times, back in 1 Samuel 18. The Lord is with David and not with Saul. Well, what does the Lord say? This is up to point 2 on the back of your outline there. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, This, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God addresses the king as my servant David. And he questions David's presumption to build God a house. The question is twofold. Firstly, God says, David, are you the one who will build me a house? The answer is no. Now, does this mean that God does not want a house? Not necessarily, we're gonna see later on in this very chapter that God does want a house. And in fact, David's son, Solomon, is the one who builds God a physical house in 1 Kings chapter three. But contrary to David's idea that he's settled, he's arrived, he's all set up, God is not yet done in setting up King David. God has more wonderful things planned for him. And so he pushes his own house building further down the line. The second question that the Lord God gives to David is this. David, do you even think I need a house? At this point, we must remember who Yahweh is, the Lord God, the almighty creator. The apostle Paul describes him in Acts chapter 17 with these words. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Does God need an upgraded house to live in? Of course not. He's God. He doesn't need anything that anyone could ever do or give. I hope you can see the bigness of God. God doesn't need our projects. He doesn't need anything. He is the Lord Almighty. But at the same time, we must look to see how God describes himself here in this chapter. What does the text say? In verses 6 and 7, he recounts the story of his people Israel wandering in the wilderness. From the time of the Exodus right up until this moment, which is a period of about 300 to 400 years, God has been dwelling with his people in a tent So here I want you to see the extraordinary humility of the Lord God. Do God's people live in tents? So does he. Do they move around all the time? He moves with them. He has not asked for a permanent physical residence because his priority has been to be with his people as they're on the move. I heard a story of a man named Sam Rayburn. There he is, looking pretty formal and and fancy, he served as the 43rd speaker of the United States House of Representatives in the 1940s and 50s. The story goes like this, the teenage daughter of a reporter that Mr Rayburn knew died suddenly. The next morning, the reporter heard a knocking on his apartment door and he opened the door and he found Mr Rayburn standing there. I just came by to see what I could do to help. The reporter, stuttering and trying to recover from his surprise, indicated that he didn't think there was anything the speaker could do. They were all making all the arrangements themselves. Well, have you, all, have you all had your morning coffee? Mr Rayburn said. The reporter confessed that they hadn't had time to do that yet. Well, I can at least make the coffee this morning, says Mr Rayburn. He goes inside, makes his way to the kitchen and in search of the coffee. While Mr Rayburn was busy with the coffee making, The reporter remembered that Rayburn usually had a stated weekly appointment on this particular morning. So he half inquired, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was, Rayburn admitted, but I called the president and told him that I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. This is only a pale glimpse of the condescension of the covenant god the god who stoops down to share in the hardships of his people the god who is not ashamed to say that he's been traveling around in a tent with them see how close he is you may be forced to revise your theology if you think that deity and humility are mutually exclusive categories if we understand the character of god rightly in this chapter We will not be surprised when we get to that that famous passage in Philippians 2. We even sang about it this morning, where the Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the same Jesus, the same God, who described himself as gentle and humble in heart. He is gentle, he is lowly. Chris showed us last week that humility is key to the Christian life, not just thinking of yourself less in a sort of negative pride, Here, this really helpful thing of, it's not thinking of yourself less, but it's thinking of yourself less often. That's the key to the Christian life. I want to suggest to you today that humility is not just the key to the Christian life, but at the very heart of the Christian God. Let's keep going with our passage. Point number three, verse eight. The Lord God continues to speak to the prophet Nathan, and he says this, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning. and have ever, And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give them rest from all your enemies. This section, here we see again an insight into the character of God. He is gracious in blessing David personally but also blessing the wider nation of Israel. The Lord starts by recounting his past blessings to David. Verse 8, he has taken him from being a lowly shepherd, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, to being the ruler and the leader of God's precious nation, Israel. What a privilege for David. Furthermore, in the past, the Lord has been with David, like we started off saying. The Lord has cut off all of David's enemies. That's why he's sitting around in his sweet cedar palace at rest and in a time of peace, because God has done this. But true to form, the Lord gives grace upon grace. From verse 9 to verse 11, God now promises a set of future blessings to David and to Israel, all in the near future. He gives four promises, one for David, two for Israel, and one more for David. So let's take a look. In the second half of verse 9, the Lord declares that he will firstly make David's name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Obviously here, we're reminded of God's big promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to make Abraham's name great. Here in 2 Samuel 7, God is now promising this same thing to David, who is one of Abraham's descendants. Secondly, the Lord blesses Israel. He promises to provide a place for them and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. God is renewing his Abrahamic covenant of land to his people, Israel. Thirdly, God blesses Israel by protecting them from all their wicked oppressors, who have been oppressing them ever since the time of the exodus. These two promises to Israel of the land and of the protection, they've already started to be fulfilled. By this point, Israel is in the promised land. David is set up in Jerusalem. All the enemies are destroyed. The Israelites have been planted on the place that the Lord has made for his dwelling. And fourthly, in verse 11, God again gives a promise to David. And he says that he will personally give David rest from all his enemies. You know how when you're reading through the Psalms, David's always crying out to God, God, save me from my enemies. And we saw all throughout one Samuel that he's being chased around all the time from Saul. Here, God is promising to answer all those prayers. I hope you can once again see the rich character of the Lord, our God. He is full of gracious blessing. He is determined to see his people Israel flourish. He protects and provides for them. He gives them grace upon grace. That is the character of the God of the Bible. David knows this. Have a look in your Bible back to chapter 5, verse 12. 5, verse 12, after Hiram, king of Tyre, builds David a palace, then, 5, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted David's kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people, Israel. God is the giver of gracious blessing. And he chooses to bless David especially with a great name and personal rest from his enemies. In fact, God is about to do something epic, and he's going to do that through his servant David. Here comes the big, the big section, point 4, verse 11b. This is the climax of the chapter. And you can see because it's got such big letters on the screen there. God is about to take everything to a whole new level. Here we go. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Now remember that David had started this whole chapter off by saying that he would build a house for God. He was going to upgrade him from that little tent into something a bit nicer. But here, God has played him a reverse card. God is going to establish a house for David. He's switched it around the other way around. Now, hang on a second. Doesn't David already have a nice house, that sweet cedar palace that Hiram King of Tyre built? Yes. God isn't talking about a physical house. He's using the word house to describe David's family tree, his line of descendants. We see that in verse 12, the next verse. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. God is promising to establish David's royal dynasty over multiple generations. The Lord himself Will establish this kingdom this is how god's going to fulfill those promises he just made about making david's name great and notice that this promise goes beyond death he says when you rest with your ancestors secondly notice how god uses the word offspring or seed if you've got a different translation of the bible the same words that he uses back in abraham times in genesis 12 and finally, notice that it's a kingdom. Look at that last word there on the screen, kingdom. God is setting up David's kingdom. David is receiving assurance of what every king wanted to hear, that his kingdom will extend beyond his own lifetime. That's why David's so far had so many children, as, as we've seen in 2 Samuel, because he's expanding his family. He's, he's securing his lineage, his house, so that when he dies, his kingdom might keep going on now. God is giving assurance of that hope. The promise takes a second turn. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name. Not only does God tell David that God is going to build David a house, but now God also says that one of David's offspring will indeed build the Lord a house, a house for his name, for the ark of God. David didn't get this gig, but rather God decreed that it would be one of his own offspring instead we are blessed by God with biblical hindsight we can look back and say that Solomon David's son and successor is the one who built a physical house for God we see that in the book of 1 Kings just a bit of a quick recap it's a bit confusing all this house language going on firstly David set out to build a house for God upgrading from the tent secondly God played that reverse card on him and says that he will build David a house and make his name great But then thirdly, God says, actually, you know what, David? Yes, one of your offspring will build me a house, but not you. One of your offspring will do that. But notice that there's only like, what, half a sentence there. God isn't actually that concerned with building a house for himself. The really big thing in this most important top five chapters of the Bible chapter is what happens in verse 13. The Lord says this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Reinforced twice more in verse 16. David's house, David's throne, David's kingdom will be established by the Lord forever. Not only is God granting to David what every king wanted to hear about his family and kingdom going beyond his own lifetime, but God is now unbelievably extending this promise out into eternity. This is why 2 Samuel 7 is such a big chapter of the Bible, because it contains such a big forever promise. Before we unpack how this story, is, this promise, is played out through the rest of the Bible, there's one more part we need to look at, and that is all about relationship. Verse 14, God says, I will be his father, and he will be my son when he does wrong. I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Covenants are all about relationship. And these verses show us the kind of relationship that is to exist between God and the offspring of David, the house of David. It is to be a father-son relationship. Now... When we hear Son of God, our minds may straightaway jump to the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he is called the Son of God, even by a Roman centurion at his own crucifixion. But this sort of immediately gives us a problem. Have a look at verse 14. It talks about the Son doing wrong. Of course, Jesus never did anything wrong. So how does this work? We need to rethink some of our labels. In the Bible... Son of God can refer to more than just Jesus. For example, the nation of Israel is called the Son of God. In Exodus chapter 4, they're his son. In this case, Israel was God's adopted, in other words, chosen people. They were God's chosen son. Here in 2 Samuel 7, we see that David's offspring will also be called God's son. God will be the father to all of David's offspring. They will all be his sons. In other words, God's chosen kings will be called sons of God. This is where we get the idea of a Messiah from. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. They both mean anointed one or king. Why were the first century Jews looking for a Messiah? Why do all the prophets talk about and look forward to a Messiah? It all stems from this chapter. Throughout the Old Testament, there were many messiahs, many Christs. They were all in the line of David, and they were all called sons of God. We might jump to think that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the only messiah. And we're right to think that because, yes, he is the son of God. In fact, he's God the son, which is another can of worms. He is the messiah, the most important one, the one all the prophets looked forward to. But we also need to realize that the son of God, this son of God promise is for all of David's offspring. Well, what extraordinary words from the Lord our God! He has said that He will graciously bless Israel and David in the near future, reinforcing those big Abrahamic promises. Secondly, He's promised to establish David's royal house, and He's promised that He will do that forever. And lastly, He's shown that this relationship will be a father-son relationship. I hope you can see why I made that big claim that this is the top one, one of the top five chapters in the whole Bible. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the big signposts along the path of God's unfolding plan, which ultimately points to Jesus. As we read the Bible, we see that God, the master storyteller, revealing his big rescue plan more and more. And as we read it, we can so clearly see that it all points to Jesus. Let me me show you just very quickly. In Genesis chapter 3, we hear about the promise of one of the offspring of the woman of Eve, to come and crush the serpent's head. The question is who will be that serpent crusher? Genesis chapter 12, we hear of God's big foundational promises to Abraham that I've mentioned a couple of times. God has promised to bless the whole world through Abraham. Genesis 49, we hear about Jacob, one of Israel, one of Jacob, one of, sorry. Genesis 49, we hear about Jacob blessing his 12 sons. In particular, he blesses his son, Judah, with these words, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In 2 Samuel 7, here, we see that David is promised an eternal royal dynasty. The Lord will establish the kingdom of his his offspring forever. And finally, we get to Jesus. Jesus, who is one of the woman's offspring, who is among Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. Jesus, who is in the, from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, who is even in the line of David, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus, who was struck by the serpent as he paid the penalty for all the world's sin on that cross. Jesus, who crushed the serpent's head as he rose victorious to new life, holding the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the serpent crusher. The whole Bible, tracing all the way through, all the promises all point to Jesus. I hope you can see how unified and cohesive the whole Bible is with one central promise, one central character, one trajectory. And I hope you can see how special it is for King David to be so centrally wrapped up in that. That's a bit of a side note. If you'd like to learn more about how this whole Bible fits together, all about Jesus thing, we call that biblical theology, I've got two resources to point you towards. Firstly, listen to Master Plan. In case you didn't know, our very own Ben Pakula has produced what he calls a biblical theology rock opera. It's a 14-track album that traces the story of God's unfolding master plan from Genesis to Revelation, and all the way it points to how each part is all about Jesus. The music is all done by Ben, so obviously it's awesome. And the words help you understand the Bible better. So it's a no-brainer. Great for listening in the car with or without kids. Buy a CD from Ben or find it on Spotify. I highly recommend Master Plan. Secondly, there are lots of good books on this subject. Um, There's a few up on the screen there. One that's been quite helpful for me is that one in the middle, GPS, God's Plan for Salvation. gives you a hands-on approach of seeing, oh, okay, this is the Old Testament. Oh, this is the New Testament. This is how they, they relate. Some great books. So what have we learned from all of this? I want to conclude with three short points, and you'll find them on the, the bottom of your little outline there. I've left some blanks you can, you can fill in if, if you like. Firstly, we've seen God's character. We've seen that he is humble. He is the giver of gracious blessing. Amidst all the big picture Bible overview, huge promise all about Jesus' business, I want us to not lose sight of the character of God. Not just, I want us to not just see the cosmicness of the promise, but the character of the promiser. And I want to ask this question. Do you know him? You might think, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I know God. But do you know him like this? This is our God, gentle and lowly in heart. Secondly I hope you can see God's master plan. The Old Testament really is all about Jesus. He's got a big rescue plan which we see unfolding all the way through the story of the Bible, Old Testament and new. All the way through the Bible has one author, one coherent message, one driving purpose, one destination, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the centre. It's all about him. And so if God's got this big master plan, thirdly, the the logical question to ask then is, well, where do you fit in God's master plan? If this is God's big plan for the world, well, what's the big plan for your life? What will be the trajectory of your life going forwards? How will you spend the next seven years? God is on a mission in the world. We're so privileged that we live this side of the cross and we can look back and see the whole plan laid out from the beginning. He has sent his son Jesus, his forever king, the Messiah, into the world to die, rise, ascend to heaven and rule the world at his father's side. What is God doing now in the world? He is gathering his church together, building it up, united under the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.10. And he will keep doing that until the day Christ returns. That is what God is doing in this world. Where do you fit? I wonder what this church will look like in another seven years' time. Will you give your next seven years to see churches grow and the gospel preached in Sydney's southwest? I know that I want to be a part of that. I want to see more churches grow and and more people come to know God in this part of the world. I want to give my life to serving God's mission and God's king because can you think of a single better thing worth living for? God has fully revealed his master plan and now he is gathering his church together, building it up under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's commit our lives to live in light of the eternal kingship of David's son. Let's recalibrate once again the trajectory of our lives from our default setting of self-serving living to join in God's mission of building his church. Amen.